Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. Let me just give a recap first, a little recap. All right, Jacob and Esau um, reunited. God blessed uh, that relationship. Um, And Esau has gone back to Seir, and Jacob went to Succoth, and then a place called Shechem. And I'm actually going to pick up in Genesis 33, 18. It says, After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So just real quick, Shechem is the second piece of real estate that the family has purchased within the promised land. The first was bought by Abraham for a cave and the surrounding field uh, to bury his wife, Sarah, in. And this is now the second piece. It's, it's not just like added in here. This is like uh, they want to keep a record. He purchased this land from King Hamor. The, the property in Canaan came legally into the hands of the Israelites. It lists the price so that everyone can see it was a fair price at the day, at the time, because like later generations could be like, well, that, that's not fair. That wasn't a fair price. Um, so we're taking it back. So that's there for that reason. But let's see what transpires. Now they're in Shechem. Let's see what transpires now that they are in Shechem. Uh, in Genesis 34.1. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. We can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. That's a great story. They get married. It's like, how did you guys meet? Um, oh, huh. it's a lovely story. But now I can explain why I've always hated your father. Um, so if you remember, in Genesis 30, it actually listed each of the male children that was born to Jacob, and it listed one female that was born to Leah. It says, afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her Dinah. And it might not seem out of place for us, or maybe we thought they just had one female daughter, but there were, there were other female daughters. You didn't typically list them in this time, in this place. And so it's a little out of the ordinary that they listed Dinah, but this is why they listed Dinah. Because this event centered around her has huge ramifications for the entire house of Israel. It says that Dinah went into the city to see or visit some of the girls. And we're going to have to talk about some things because I think when we see that, we think like she went to visit her friends. It's just like us going down the street. And I'm going to explain a little bit of the differences. 
The word used here is ra'a, which implies she didn't go to visit her friend. She wanted to participate or explore or to learn something. Okay, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, says that she went to join in on one of the pagan feasts celebrated by the Hivites. And that would make a little sense that she went to a pagan feast, like that there would be some kind of drunken revelry that led to this event. It wasn't like he just looked out the window and wanted her. Um, she was at this feast. And scholars agree uh, that Dinah was about 15 at the time, at the oldest. She's 15 at the time. She's a virgin. She's at marrying age. And she would never, ever have been allowed to go here by herself. Never. She, she would have been with someone always, even when she's with the Israelites, but especially she would not have been able to go here. So in essence, she snuck out. She snuck out. Has anyone ever snuck out before? No? I snuck out all the time. Um, one time, I had to call my mom in the morning because I couldn't get a ride home, but I knew we were going to church and I was not there. So I had to call her and I had my own phone downstairs and she was like, hey, and I was like, hey, I need you to come pick me up over here. And she came and got me. And all my sisters laughed and laughed at me. Um, and she actually grounded me for several months, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me, really. Um, it was. But before you go any further, because we've kind of explained these things, before we go any further, I just want to say I'm not implying in any way that this is her fault. Okay? She snuck out, but I'm not implying this is her fault. Okay? She's young. She made a foolish decision. We, we all make foolish decisions. You know, we do things we shouldn't have done. Sometimes there's consequences, but no one's going to sit there and be like, this is your fault. If you're in a court of law, it's not going to be like, well, you know? Okay, so let's get that out of our hand. She, she doesn't understand the situation. Um, we all, at one point, don't understand why parents have certain rules. You know? We, we think we're going to live forever. I remember we went to Israel um, because... As a pastor, you have to have said, I went to Israel. Um, I'm just kidding. So I'm just, I've never been. I just do that out there so y'all think that I, no, I, we did. And um, what's true? I did go. Um, and we had this, this young girl with this college age, and she was blonde and she was pretty. And one night she went out into the Arab section and found some guys, just guys, and said, hey, what do you do for fun? And they took her to a club. And she wasn't with any of us. And she was outside where they told us where to go with just males to go and went to a club. And when she came back alive, everyone, I mean, you first everyone's like really relieved. And then all, all the dads, like every dad, not just her dad, were like, what are you doing? What were you thinking? That was so unsafe. You were in so much danger. And should it have been the case that she was in danger? No. Should it have been the case that Dinah was in danger? If we lived in a perfect world, they shouldn't be in danger. But the reality is there's evil people in the world. And some people have said, well, this is pretty much akin to a young woman sneaking out and going to a club by herself. But that's not the case. That's not the case in any way. That's, that's kind of part of the error there. Because we often look at these other tribes and cultures in the Bible and we think, oh, they're just like different people, right? They're like just people from like uh, Chicago, right? Still, still very much like us, right? They just maybe eat different things. But what we fail to remember is our nation was built on God. And it was founded upon his word. Our moral code and our rules are based on the Bible. John Adams even said, without God, without our religion, all of this falls apart. All of it falls apart because we've agreed upon a moral code based on the Bible. And even though that's kind of falling apart a little bit, um, 
if you take the Bible out of the moral code, um, everything falls apart. But our, no matter how far we've come from everyone serving God, the foundation of this country and our rules are based on the Bible. They're based on the Bible. It's still there. So we have this benefit of thinking everyone, everything's as great as us. But even if we're not following God as a country, like the foundation and the rules are based on the Bible. They're based on God, right? And so that, but like people say the golden rule all the time. They're like, yeah, doing to others as you'd have them do to you is the golden rule, you know? And you're like, that's, they don't even know that's the Bible, you know? Um, but these, these are Hivites, okay? And their culture is not based on the Bible or on God at all. They, they, this is a culture that had like human sacrifices and, and orgies. They're like, it's more akin to like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know? Right? They probably had like human teeth and skulls and like, maybe not, but that's just what I picture. But anyway, it's far more dangerous than just going to a club in America, okay? And, and the prince's son rapes her. He takes what he wants. It, and it's an age-old story. Um, it's an age-old story. We see this all the time. Like, if you really, really want to look at, into why abortion exists, it's really because of men, because men could get away with it scot-free. You'd be like, oh, yeah, you're pregnant. You're li- not mine. Your life's over. Not mine. I'm, I'm going on, right? I'm, I'm moving on. I remember when we first had Flynn, we didn't have a lot of money because we were a touring band. And um, we, uh, like, I signed us up. Daisy's kind of annoyed with me. But I kind of signed us up for, like, what, Medicare or something because we had so little money that we could do it. And so we had to go meet with this doctor. And we'd we'd, um, been married for four years, so um, I guess I wasn't providing. um, But so we went to this doctor, and the doctor, we're sitting there together. We've been married for four years, and the doctor is talking to Daisy and like, I'm not there. And I'm like, okay, so when he goes, like, you're going to need to maybe be able to do this by yourself, and you need to make sure. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, I'm right here. Like, I'm sitting right here. And I was thinking, like, I'm going to, like, you don't know me. Like, I'm, but I'm like, this is the reality. This is her reality. They're just like, I've heard this a million times. I'm talking to you because this one won't be there, Right? And, and, I, and I got mad at first, and then I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to defend myself because they've heard it a million times. I'm just going just gonna to do it, and it doesn't matter. Age-old story. And it says his heart was drawn to her. Oh, so romantic. His heart was drawn to her. But the original word, the original state says that his soul, and this is after they had sex, it said his soul cleaved to her. It, it adhered to her. And this is what happens with sex. It's why God intended it within marriage because it creates a soul tie with a person. And, and it says that he loved her, but he just lusted after her. Do you think they'd had enough conversations for him to be like, man, she's just everything I'd ever want. Her personality, everything. Our beliefs are so similar. It's crazy. She likes to eat this. I like to eat this. No, it was all lust. He doesn't even know her. And then he does this thing, takes this woman, and then he goes to his dad. And we can kind of get an impression of what this guy's really like. When he's like, goes to his dad, he's like, get me this woman for a wife. Whatever it costs, it's what I want, Dad. Dad, 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 it's what I want. And they're like, well, last week you wanted Rebecca. It's like, Dad, you didn't even know me, Dad. This is my heart. This is my heart. Didn't I, didn't it say I, I spoke tenderly to her? I never speak tenderly to anyone. Well, obviously in love, Dad, right? Get this girl for me, right? And, and so the father, Hamor, goes out to speak with Jacob to buy his son a bride. He's like, whatever, whatever you want, I'll pay for it. And this guy's like a, a king, so he's used to getting what he wants, right? Um, and um, his son is used to getting what he wants. And, and, and it looks like things are going to work out. Isn't this nice? They can be together. 
in love forever. Remember that Dinah is still being held hostage. She hasn't come home, right? She's still in the city. She's still there. He hasn't let her come home. She's still there being held hostage in this place. Jacob, the father, hasn't seen or talked to her. And then this other guy's dad comes out and is like, hey, we'll pay you for it. It's not going to go well. Just warning you. Okay? And, and as bad as you think it might be, that's going to be worse. <laughs> so let's read this. 34, 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's son replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give your sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we'll give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us, one people, live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with them, agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Can you believe that? If someone came to you, I don't care who they are, if they were your boss, they are like, listen, my son, he likes this girl. Talk to the father. Good news. They can marry. But you got to cut your penis. <laughs> I'd be like, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that your son is not going to be married. Because I'm not doing that. He was the guy's like, no, look, I got a knife right here. I just did it. My, my son was so delighted. He went home and immediately did it. And I'm telling you, it's the best. It's the best. Like, how do you get a whole town to agree to this, right? I mean, like, this guy, he has some negotiating skills. This guy, he convinced the whole town to do it, right? And that's it. That's the sermon. Let's pray. This is, I'm writing a book called How to Be a Winner and Influence People, right? And it's like, if you get to this point, you've made it. Forget money. If you can talk people into that, you're good, right? So, I'm going to keep going with it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so Hamor, he, he gets everyone to do it. And he kind of, he's interested and he kind of sells them on like, hey, look, there'll be some financial gains for us. He says, won't their stuff be our stuff? And we can, we can have their stuff. There's like this promise of money. But like really, I mean, Hamor is the king. He's going to get the money. He's going to get livestock. Like the regular people aren't going to benefit from it at all. So he's still kind of is duping them. And so every male does it. Now they're like, okay, we agree to that. That's, that's not too harsh a terms, right? So they do it, and it looks like everything's going to work out, guys. It's, good. It looks, it's looking good. I just want to point out that tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And that's why 
chose to tell the greatest love story of all time. Um, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. And you're kind of like, yeah. You're like, well, they deserved it. Um, they put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking us plunder, everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? I admit, it's not the the men's fault in the city, but like when you read this, you're so appalled at what happened that like at first you're kind of like, yeah, that's good. They made sure that's not going to happen again. You just kill everybody. I'm not going to talk about killing people again. Um, but I do, I wouldn't point out, so the, the sons of Jacob who do this, who kind of have this idea uh, are Simeon and Levi, right? And if you, we're going to get to it later, but you know, Joseph and his um, man, I always want to say Technicolor Dreamcoat, and that's not it. In his, in his coat, and you think, how could people come up with a plan to sell their own brother into slavery? Well, now we can see that they are really good at plans that you're like, how in the world would you ever think of that? Okay, these are the same people who do that to Joseph later. They come up with this awful plan to have every, everyone circumcise themselves, and when they're hurting, they're going to go kill them. And they didn't do it alone. It wasn't just Simeon and Levi. They each had like their own tribes, their own servants. So they get their people and they most likely, they most likely enlisted people from their tribe and they're going around and they're, it's like a covert operation, right? Going from house to house, killing the, the men silently. And then the other brothers, they don't take part in the murder. But then when, when everyone's dead, they're like, well, they help plunder the city, which is kind of like giving their stamp of approval to the brothers right? Because they're taking part in the rewards, I guess. And so and Simeon and Levi kill Hamor and Shechem, and they rescue their sister. And Jacob, and I'm sure they're coming home, and they're just like, we got her back, you know? And, and Jacob's upset. And he's upset because now they have a target on their back. He's like, we're not a huge tribe, and now everyone is going to hear of this, right? And, they're, and they're, we're going to have a target on our back. Now we have enemies. But not only that, he's like, appalled at the actions of his sons. He's just like, I don't even know how that came into your mind. And I'm very disturbed by it. I'm very disturbed by this trickery. And so on his deathbed, he's so appalled that years later, on his deathbed, in Genesis 49.5, Jacob says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And this, if you read this chapter, you can see his statements concerning his sons are prophecies about what will happen 
to his sons. And this comes to pass. All these things come to pass, right? He says, I'll scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Simeon, when they're splitting up the land, he's given a small piece of territory that's surrounded by the territory of Judah. And eventually, um, Judah absorbs that tribe. So it just disappears. And then, and then Levi, it, it, uh, he's the forefather of the Levites, and they get no land um, when the tribes are given allotments. Instead, they're scattered between the other 12 tribes to serve as priests and, te- and temple workers, and they're not together. They're scattered in groups amongst the other ones to serve them. And their primary job is to sacrifice animals, to butcher them, which is a bloody job. They're like temple guards. So their violence, kind of this curse that Jacob puts on them, that comes to pass. They're scattered among the people in Israel. And we can see further by this statement in Genesis 49, if God's prophesying through Jacob, you can see this isn't just Jacob. God is not pleased with the actions of Simeon and Levi. And if God came and said, Simeon, Levi, why have you done this thing? Their reaction would probably be the same. Are we supposed to let him treat our sister like a prostitute? And when we say something like that to God, It's like, should he get away with it? Are you going to do anything about it? Were you going to do anything about it? Should we just let it happen? Should he just get away with it scot-free? And it might seem like they were kind of in between a rock and a hard place. What are they to do? What, What are their options? They allow the marriage. They allow the marriage. But if they do this, They're directly disobeying God because God said, do not mix, do not intermarry with the people of Canaan. So they cannot, if they're going to obey God, they cannot allow this marriage to happen. But if they don't allow the marriage, their little sister, especially like in this time and place, she's ruined. She's ruined forever. No one will marry her. No one will marry her. Her life is over. Everything that that they imagined for their sister, everything they imagined for their daughter about children and grandchildren, about her children playing with your children, it was never, ever going to happen. She was ruined. She she would carry the shame for the rest of her life. And And you can see Simeon and Levi being like, are we to just let it go? Are we to just let that go? And sometimes we think, are we just going to let it go like you did? Like you would, God? The easiest answer, if we're we're honest, the easiest answer would for for them to let the marriage go through. That would be the easiest answer. The easiest answer is always disobeying God. Always when there's options and it's just like, well, we could just disobey God. We could just disobey God. That's, and that's always usually what we choose because we think, we think, well, then I'll just ask for forgiveness later. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. They probably only said no because they were so mad. Maybe they asked themselves, is this what God would want for our sister to be ruined? And so they make their own decision based on their feelings, based on their anger, based on their own sense of justice. And they do something not of God, ungodly, to uphold what is godly. They do something ungodly to uphold what is godly. To not intermingle intermingle, and to not make amends for the sin, both godly things. We basically, 
have to do something that is ungodly. We see this often today. We see Christians doing this and, and that and things that are not of God and justify it by saying the end result is of God. The, the end justifies the means is not a biblical concept. It's not a biblical concept. And we see this in individuals. We see it in the churches. There, there are situations uh, when you work in the church, you have friends in ministry. And I, uh, my dad was a pastor, and so I've heard stories from him and, and um, his friends. And like you just get these stories. And there are situations where ch- churches will say like, um, you know, a friend told us a story where the, the church was like, hey, all of our tithe is going to this today. And everyone gave to that because they wanted to give to that. And then they were like, well, this is like $30,000. So we're not going to let's do this. And the pastor came in and said, if you keep any bit of that money, you're all liars and thieves. You're all liars and thieves. And, they're, they're, and their thought is like, hey, well, the church needs to stay open. We can, God can bless them and bless us. It's a godly thing. We need to keep this church open. Honestly, guys, as a Christian band touring, you know the only people that ever stiffed us were churches and only churches. And their thought is like, well, we can't lose money. We need to give money to the, these people. And we're like, well, we're in a van. <laughs> we're driving from here. We need to, like, and that's why, like, so many, uh, I've seen so many things, like, back in the day when a band came or a minister came, they took love offerings. Like, let's just take a love offering. We're going to give it to them. But then what happened was they started uh, not giving the, the, the act or the, the priesthood that, that much money, and they were losing money rather than the church losing money. So they started having guarantees. Let's say, hey, we'll come, but you're going to sign this contract and guarantee us that you're going to pay us this much money. We're not coming. And churches will be like, well, we, oh, no. Well, why don't you just trust in the love offering? And they're all like, because we've been burnt by the love offering before. And it wasn't necessarily the people, but the, the people in the church whose job was to then hand over that money. We've seen so many churches and Christian organizations who've lied and covered up evil deeds by their leaders. It's happening. All these pastors falling and people knew. They were hurting people. And they're like, well, we don't want people to know because people respect this person. This person got so many people saved that if they are, if people, if it's revealed who they are, then these people will maybe lose their faith. And so it's really in the best interest of everybody, in the best interest of God, if we just cover this. If we just cover this, if we do something ungodly in the name of something godly. I had a friend, uh, I have a friend. Um, he's an associate pastor now, but he used to be a youth pastor. And, and when you're kind of in these situations, um, the first thing you do is call your other friend who's a youth pastor. And you're like, you would not believe what just happened. So, and he had this um, kid who was in his youth, but then was in college and working a job, and he had got a job as a photographer um, for Playboy. But it wasn't like full nudes, you know, it was like, um, you know, tasteful, I guess. And, um, and would post the pictures up on his, on his social media. And so some of the, the people who were still in youth and some of the college-age kids who followed him unfollowed him because they were like, I, don't know, I can't be looking back, I can't pop it up on my feed. And the youth pastor said, I unfollowed him because I can't have that showing up on my feed. I can't, I can't have that like I'm following this. Well, uh, this young man, his father was still in the church and he came to the pastor and said, my son, when he's in town, doesn't want to come here because he doesn't feel like this is his church anymore. And I think it's because these people have stopped following him on social media. And so the pastor goes to the youth pastor and says, 
have you been encouraging these people to unfollow this person? And these pastors like, well, I didn't necessarily. I mean, I just think they've unfollowed because like, you know, everyone knows that a struggle for, for young men is porn. And I know they've banded together to keep each other accountable and they're probably just unfollowing on their own. And the pastor's like, well, I don't want you to discourage it in any way. Don't, don't discourage them following this person. And the pastor said, have you seen the pictures? And the pastor said, yeah, they're amazing pictures. Girls come from all over the world to take their picture with this guy. He's one of the top 15 photographers in the nation. It's a really good job. So don't discourage anyone from following him because we want him to feel accepted by the church. We're going to let all these boys continue to look at this thing and not, dis- not discourage sin. Not dis- we're not going to discourage sin because this one person needs to feel accepted. And so we're going to let these boys maybe look at these things that will ruin their marriage, that could destroy their lives, that could create an addiction, that can hold them in bondage. And we're going to put them in that bondage. We're going to put all of them in this bondage so this one person won't feel bad. Sometimes feeling bad is conviction of God, okay? And we can't let that type of thing happen. That's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. But we do this as individuals too. We do. We, we, we like, we're like, hey, okay, I don't, you can't like, people are like, oh, did the pastor say that? And you're like, well, I don't think he meant that. I don't really want you to hear the truth. Like, because I, I don't want you to feel condemned. I don't want you to feel any conviction. I don't want you to feel bad. So maybe this, and we, we kind of protect people. We think we're a bridge to God, making it easy for them. You know, but really, we're a roadblock to God. Like, I don't really want you to know him. I don't really want you to know what he says. And why are we doing that? Are we ashamed of him? Are we ashamed of what he says? Are we embarrassed of who he is? Because protecting people from God is just going to keep them from God. And you're going to stand in the way. You're going to stand in the way. Truth will be heard and truth will be spoken. And there's nothing that broke me to God like having truth spoken to me about who I, who I was and where I was. And it was the truth that set me free. And if you don't want people set free, then by all means, keep protecting them from God with truth. We can protect those young men and God can deal with that man and bring him home because that's what God does. That's what God does. In Romans 3.8, Paul says, someone might argue If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Let us do evil that good may result. And Paul says their condemnation of us in seeing that is just. And right now, As a church, as a church in America, this is where we are living right now, in the condemnation of people who have seen things in the church that we have let go, that we knew about, and we let it go. And they, the world, condemns us, and it's just. It's just. Because they think it's disgusting, and we're the people of God. It should be ever more so. Now, we don't go around killing people, 
But evil and ungodly practices enter the church and in our lives. We have a lot of gray areas. A lot of gray areas. We don't want people to feel condemned. Condemned. Sometimes we're like, I'm going to take part in what they're doing, even though it's a sin, because I'm the Christian, they know I'm a Christian. And so I don't want to like make them feel condemned by not partaking. So I have to partake, you see, because it's really my ministry. It's my ministry to partake of sin with them, right? So that they don't feel bad. I, I disobey God as a witness, really, you know? Really, it's because we don't trust that God can and will work on his own without our help. God can and will work. And that's when people see the power of God. We've been called to obedience. And when we do this, all we're doing is standing in the way of what God wants to do. We're a roadblock. We are a stumbling block. Simeon and Levi did not trust that they could obey God's word, that they could say, you can't marry our sister because we can't mingle with you guys, and God will handle the justice for that. Because they didn't trust that God would handle the justice for that. They did not believe that God would set things right, that God could set things right. And often, we see justice as punishment for the crime, right? Like, because we just see it like it can't be taken back. It can't be undone. This thing was taken and it can't be undone. So they should be punished and they should be punished. They should be punished. But often we get caught up in what the punishment should be. And the anger that we have, the reason we want to see that punishment so bad is because what was taken. And maybe we doubt it can ever, ever be redeemed. I was talking with some people and we had this, this kind of question as I brought this up. And if someone was asked, and this is, if someone was asked, if someone molested your child and you could only wish for one thing, one of these options, would you wish that they spent the rest of their life in prison or would you wish that your child was completely unaffected by it in any way? Innocence, not God. Didn't change anything about the way they spoke, the way they thought, what would you wish if you only had one choice? Because, I mean, and in a perfect world, you know, it'd be both. But really, the reason we're so angry and we want the punishment is because we know that this can't, we just, this can't happen. Can this happen? Can my child's innocence be restored? And let me tell you something. We are mind, body, soul, and spirit. Spirit is what lives forever. Spirit is who you are. Spirit makes up who you are. It is what lives forever. It is the embodiment of who we are, and no one, no person can touch it. No one can touch it. Only God can. That will never, ever be taken or touched or messed with or defiled. Never. They did not trust that they could obey God and that God could or would do anything about their ruined sister. And so they did not allow God to work because they didn't give him the opportunity to work. But years and years later, years and years and years later, this town, Shechem, goes by a different name. And that name is Sychar. And something transpires in Sychar. And I believe the reason this event transpired in Sychar 
is for the reason of what had happened so long ago. In John 4, 1 through 14, it says concerning Jesus. Now he had had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given it to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. He gives her the truth. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to this woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. So Jesus so many years ago in the same town, at the same well Jacob was at, he comes across a woman that no one would talk to that was ruined. Hope is long gone. When it's a child, you think maybe someone will marry her. Maybe something will happen. Maybe this could happen. Maybe this could happen. Maybe there's still kind of hope, even though it's fading. This woman is ruined and has been ruined, ruined for years, and there's nothing that can change that. Her parents and her family and everyone in the town has given up on her. She is what she is. She's been ruined six times over. There's nothing for her. No one talks to her. She's so surprised that Jesus is even talking to her because she is so ruined, so much more ruined. And Jesus reveals to her who he is and the living water he can give her. And her life is changed. And she becomes the most famous woman in this town. And she goes and tells everyone else and brings them to Jesus. Come look at what I've seen. Come look and see this man who talked to me like I was a person. And look at me, I'm ruined. And he... He talked to me and he gave me, he laid me water and he, he told me he's the Messiah and I saw him and I'm the first one to see him and he blessed me. No longer ruined. 
And he does it in the very same town. And I think Jesus is showing there are things that you think that I cannot do. There are things that you think I cannot redeem. There's innocence that is lost that you think I cannot restore. And I'm here to tell you something. That's what I have come to do. That's what I've come to do. That's all I do. I take what is ruined and I rebuild it and I restore it and I shine it in my glory and I make it new and I make it gold. And you'll say, look at this thing. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. And so I'm here to tell you as Christians, we cannot step in front of Jesus and the Samaritan and be like, don't tell her about her husband. She knows. But I'm also here to tell you, because we still, we're, you know, we look like, I can't believe that poor girl's life was over. But let's be real. There are certain things that we think in our hearts, maybe our greatest fear, are ruined forever. And events happen and we think, this is ruined forever. This cannot change. This person will be affected. This one event is going to guide their life. And everything after that is going to be a product of this one thing. And we start to be afraid. And we think, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish I could go back and change this because I'm just looking at the future. And you're looking at the future without Jesus in it. Because when Jesus is in it, nothing is ever ruined. Nothing is ever ruined. Jesus will restore it. Jesus can take something you think is ruined and make it even better than it was before because that's what he came to do. That's all that he does. And as people, we need to stand on that. We need to realize who Jesus is and what he does and realize in our hearts, nothing is ever ruined when Jesus touches it. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.